You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Closing time. One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. You couldn't go a week in 1998 without hearing Semisonic's second big single. It was nominated for the Billboard Music Award for Modern Rock Track of the Year. One wonders, though, if the people who nominated it knew it wasn't about drunks in the bar. It was about a newborn baby. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. There came a time in the early 1990s when the band R.E.M., challenged themselves to do an album with a faster, harder sound and strictly electric instruments. No acoustic guitars, no mandolins, of which they were very fond, no nothing. Whether or not you think that was really a challenge, you can't argue with the results. 1993's Monster. The first song on the album and the first single released, What's the Frequency, Kenneth?, is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about today. The strange and surprising origins of popular songs. Back in the days before on-demand digital video, back even before the wide proliferation of cable TV, the nightly news on the big three networks was what you watched. It was Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, or Dan Rather, the latter of which was walking to his apartment along Park Avenue in New York on an October night in 1986. He also has a savage Twitter game these days, but that's neither here nor there. As he neared his building's entrance, a pair of well-dressed men approached him. One asked, What is the frequency, Kenneth? Rather replied, You must be mistaking me for someone else. Hopefully that was all he meant to say, because it was all he got to say. The man knocked Rather to the ground, kicked and punched him, all the while repeating the same strange question. The doorman and the building super heard Rather calling for help, and the assailants fled when the two rescuers arrived. The police took Rather's statement, but they didn't have anything substantive to go on. No one was ever arrested and no one can explain who Kenneth was or what the frequency might have been, least of all rather himself. I got mugged. Who understands these things? I didn't, and I don't now. I wish I knew who did it and why, but I have no idea. Sure, that was weird, but people get mugged every day. Well, keep your hands inside the car at all times, because the truly bizarre is still to come. Eight years later, in 1994, a North Carolina man named William Tager took an assault rifle to the studio where NBC films the Today Show. He would later tell police that NBC had been monitoring him for years and beaming secret messages into his head. He'd gone down there to stop them, one way or another. 
A studio technician blocked Tager getting into the building and was sadly killed, for which Tager would be sentenced to 15 to 25 years in Sing Sing. In prison, he told the psychiatrist something that was both a clear sign of delusion and an amazing story idea. Tager was in fact a time traveler from the year 2265, from an Earth parallel to our own. He was a convicted felon there, too, and had been given the opportunity to test pilot the dangerous time travel device, and his sentence would be lifted, if he lived. The authorities in the future had kept an eye on him with a chip in his brain. In one session, Tager confessed to the attack on Dan Rather, because he had mistaken Rather for the vice president of his world, Kenneth Burroughs. Rather confirmed from a picture of Tager that that was the man who attacked him. And that's still not the weirdest part. In 1995, two years after the album Monster came out, smack between Tager's crime and his conviction, Dan Rather joined R.E.M. on stage in New York to sing along with the song. It's in the show notes. You can be the judge. It's definitely cringy, if nothing else. R.E.M. singer Michael Stipe described the incident, It's a misunderstanding that was scarily random, media-hyped, and just plain bizarre. The mugging, that is, not Dan Rather singing. I'm not allowed to sing, court order, or I would sing the praises of the 50-plus strong supporter community at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, all of whom get early access, ad-free episodes, and more many of whom will get a surprise treat in the mail next month, or whenever the USPS can manage it, as well as the fabulous folks who leave us reviews. The Your Brain on Facts book got an admirably succinct review this past week from Pete, who described it as informative and fun. It's a brilliant, very informative, and a fun read. I am so very thankful for finding this. Five thumbs up. Thank you for that, Pete. Pete's review is unfortunately the last one we have right now, so if you've gotten yourself a copy or received one for the holidays, I'd love to hear what you think about it. We do have more reviews for the show because the show is picking up a good following over on podchaser.com, which is like IMDb for podcasts, and a great place to review your favorite shows if your podcast listening app doesn't allow for that. We got two little ones I'll read for you today. Vinny Git says, Great podcast. Moxie puts lots of information in this little podcast, and I learn a lot by listening. Love it. But, to be completely honest, I would listen to Moxie read a phone book. Her voice is that good. Sweet, yet incredibly precise and clear. Hey, Vinny, can you write ad copy for my VO business? That would really help me out there. And don't forget, all of my listeners, if you need VO for your small businesses or whatever you're working on, you do get 50% off the going rate. Another review came from Donnie D, who said, Moxie covers an array of interesting topics with a touch of humor masterfully. She keeps me interested and always wanting more. I have listened to every episode. Thank you so much for the review, Donnie D, and for listening to the back catalog. It still blows my mind that people like what I'm doing enough to listen to hundreds of hours of it. I don't even know how much I have anymore. Lots of hours, though, because I'm not usually a back catalog person myself. So it always blows me away to hear that. And if you want to hear your opinions read on the show, leave us a review, and I'll do my best to get to every last one. 
By the way, if you're listening to the show in Hong Kong, Singapore, or India, hop on the social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, and say hi. And let me know where you first heard about the show, because apparently I rank very high in the history category for podcasts in those countries. If you find yourself falling apart, whereas once upon a time you were falling in love, then there's nothing I can do. Total Eclipse of the Heart is about vampires. Big-haired balladeer Bonnie Tyler's mega-hit was originally supposed to be a vampire love song, according to its composer Jim Steinman. He was working on a musical adaptation of the OG vampire movie Nosferatu, because I don't know about you, but when I picture Max Schreck's bald pate and pointy front teeth, I feel like breaking into intensely choreographed song. Of course, if anyone could pull that off, it would be Steinman, who in 1977 gave the world Meatloaf's debut album, Bad Out of Hell. The title track of the album so impressed Tyler that she asked her label to connect her with Steinman for a collaboration. Steinman took a half-finished song he was calling Vampires in Love and presented it to Tyler, and the rest is music history. Incidentally, Steinman's Nosferatu musical didn't come to be. You might say it never saw the light of day. Instead, Steinman did see the creation of another vampire musical, 2002's Dance of the Vampires, and he opens the second act with Total Eclipse of the Heart. By the by, if you've never seen the literal music video for Total Eclipse, you are going to be so glad that I linked it in the show notes. If you don't like vampires, how about Frankenstein? And yes, I'm using the name Frankenstein to refer to the creature. It's a patronym. Come at me, bro. Aerosmith's Walk This Way was inspired by a gag from Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, the bit where Marty Feldman, God rest him, hobbles down some stairs with a tiny little cane. Guitarist Joe Perry had settled on the riff and singer Steven Tyler was just barely starting on the lyrics, when the rest of the band began campaigning for the song to be called Walk This Way. And they eventually won Tyler over. Of course, if you pay the slightest bit of attention to the lyrics, and isn't it funny how you can sing along with a song for decades and never actually do that, you'll notice it's got nothing to do with classic comedy and is just a sexually charged raunch fest from Go!, and now presenting my favorite Aerosmith anecdote. I'm not saying the boys in the band used to do a lot of drugs. Like, a lot, a lot. But Steven Tyler once heard the song You See Me Crying on the radio and said to Joe Perry, Hey, we should cover this. Who is it? Perry replied, That's us, kid. It's that song you made us get a 109-piece orchestra for. Hold up. Here's a thought. Walk This Way came from Frankenstein. It came out in 1975, then died away, and was resurrected in 1986, with its original parts stitched together with new ones. That being Joseph Simmons, Daryl McDaniels, and Jam Master J of Run DMC, which introduced rock fans to hip-hop and rap, introduced hip-hop and rap fans to Aerosmith, and gave Aerosmith a boost into the MTV generation. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The most common theme in songwriting has got to be love. Yearning for love, finally finding love, losing love, the love that dares not speak its name, which is incidentally what Little Richard's Tutti Frutti was about. And sometimes it's a love that only one half of the duo is feeling or knows about. It's been used in movies like Mean Girls and TV shows like The Simpsons and Veronica Mars. It's popular for movie trailers. Who doesn't love the rock-heavy beat and powerful vocals of the feminist anthem One Way or Another from Blondie? Debbie Harry even performed it on The Muppet Show. And it's about a stalker, from the stalker's point of view. I was actually stalked by a nut job, Debbie Harry told Entertainment Weekly. So it came out of a not-so-friendly personal event. The song was Harry's way to get a little revenge, but she knew she had to keep it light at the same time. So light that we sing along and never hear ourselves saying things like, I'll drive past your house, and if the lights are down, I'll see who's around. For as well as one way or another performed, the chart-toppingest song about a stalker has got to be Michael Jackson's 1981 Billie Jean. Jackson would say Billie Jean was written about the groupies that his older brothers had when he was in the Jackson 5, but biographer J. Randy Terraborelli dug a little deeper for his book The Magic and the Crazy. Jackson had begun receiving letters from a woman claiming that he was the father of her child. That was actually not super unusual. He got lots of letters like that and he tended to ignore them. But this woman kept sending letters, in which she professed her love and talked about how they would be a happy couple raising their child together. She asked how Jackson could ignore his own flesh and blood. The letters became so disturbing, it actually gave Michael Jackson nightmares. Rightly so. One day, he got a package containing a picture of the woman, a letter, and a gun. In the letter, She asked that Michael kill himself at a specific day and time, when she would be killing herself and their baby. Thankfully, any potential tragedy was avoided, and the woman received the mental health counseling that she needed. As the song began to coalesce in Jackson's brain, he knew he had a hit on his hands and was totally absorbed by the song. During a break in recording, he and someone he worked with at the studio were driving down the Ventura freeway when a man on a motorcycle pulled up alongside them and told them the car was on fire. Jackson was so engrossed in the songwriting in his head, didn't even notice. 
You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. If you're Patty Boyd, there is a much higher than normal chance that a song recorded by an established artist is about you. Not obscure songs either, stuff that charted. Songs that listeners of a certain age would know by heart. And they're not breakup songs either. Well, not most of them. And that's a key distinction. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in popular music with more songs written about them. So who is this muse, this inspiration? Born into a military family in 1944, Patty Boyd's childhood bounced from Somerset, England, to Scotland, back to England, to Kenya, then to Nairobi, and then back to England, where she was educated at a boarding school, which I'm going to assume was quite stuffy and boring by comparison. Boyd herself said she didn't date as a teenager because she was at the boarding school. At age 18, she began modeling at the suggestion of a client of the salon where she worked as a shampoo girl. She was an immediate success, appearing in Vogue, Vanity Fair, fashion spreads in major newspapers, and, according to one account, even influenced Twiggy, the wafy-thin model who made life miserable for the curvaceous women who had been the standard for, like, ever. Boyd was described as the embodiment of, quote, the British female look, miniskirt, long straight hair, and wide-eyed loveliness. The director of a TV commercial Boyd was in cast her in the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night, where she met, among others, my father's favorite Beatle, George Harrison. They quickly became an item, and dating one of the biggest rock stars in the world certainly didn't hurt Boyd's modeling career. Why is it always rockers and models? How come they never date scientists or teachers? The pair were the pinnacle of cool, even more than the other Beatles and their partners. Boyd even began writing a column for Sixteen magazine in the United States to keep the little Yankee birds up to date on London trends. Boyd and Harrison were officially engaged for one month before marrying in January 1965. She shared her new husband's interest in Eastern mysticism and went with the band to India. In the five years that her marriage overlapped with the Beatles still being together, she inspired Harrison to pen at least five songs. I Need You, If I Needed Someone, Love You Too, Something, and For You Blue. I Need You was only the second song written by Harrison to make it onto a Beatles album, 1965's Help. Harrison grew as a songwriter between Help and 69's Abbey Road, writing increasingly about social issues. But the Boyd-inspired song I Want to Tell You was about, quote, the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down or say or transmit. Something, which was written during the creation of the White Album, has been covered many times. According to Boyd's memoirs, Wonderful Tonight, Harrison's favorite cover was James Brown's, but her favorite version was the one George played for her in their kitchen. As sweet as that is, nothing lasts forever, and the couple began to grow apart. They'd been unable to conceive, but Harrison wouldn't consider adoption. Boyd returned to modeling, but that conflicted with Harrison's spiritual beliefs. In 1973, Boyd began an affair with Ronnie Wood, then the guitarist for the band Faces. This tumultuous time not only prompted Harrison to pen yet another song about Boyd, So Sad, 
but Boyd inspired Wood to write Mystifies Me and Breathe On Me on the two solo albums that came on either side of his joining the Rolling Stones. Boyd wasn't the only one stepping out. Harrison had a penchant for extramarital affairs, but it was his tryst with Ringo Starr's wife Maureen that really took the biscuit. And the couple had what Boyd's solicitor praised as a sensible and level-headed divorce in 1977. Jumping back into the late 60s, Harrison had become close friends and jam buddies with Derek and the Dominoes guitarist-singer Eric Clapton, who fell madly in love with Patty Boyd. He was so enamored with his friend's wife that he, I guess, went for the next best thing and dated her sister Paula for a while. Clapton, too, wrote songs about Boyd, including one with one of the most iconic riffs ever. The name Layla comes from a Persian story about a man driven to madness by unobtainable love, which handily obscured the fact that he was singing about his good friend's wife. I'm going to risk dividing the room here, but pop over to our social media and look for a poll on whether you prefer the original or the MTV Unplugged version. My dad really didn't like the Unplugged version, and I agree that the more rocking riff is superior but I like the unplugged version better overall, if for no other reason than it has the decency to end. The original is like a Stephen King novel. It was really good, but it just keeps going well beyond where it logically should have ended. Fight me. Boyd rebuffed Clapton's attention, so he went off to sulk and do heroin for a few years, as you do. Once he got clean in 74, and Boyd's marriage was on the rocks, He set his cap for her again, and this time she said yes. Boyd and Clapton would marry in 1979 and become what the still-on-good-terms Harrison would call his husband-in-law, which is freaking adorable and terribly well-adjusted. What's not adorable was the alcoholism both Boyd and Clapton subsequently descended into as they struggled with marital woes, infertility, and miscarriages. Oh, and Clapton's repeated infidelity, which left Boyd to speculate that he had only wanted her because Harrison had her, and his competitive nature just couldn't quit. They were divorced in 1989. During the good times, though, Boyd inspired Clapton to write She's Waiting, Bellbottom Blues, and the far better known, but in this reporter's opinion, absolute snooze fest, Wonderful Tonight. In her book, Boyd recalled one evening when she kept Clapton waiting hours when she tried to decide what to wear for a night out, during which he was killing time with his guitar and came up with the chorus. One does hate to reinforce tired old gender stereotypes, but if you're taking so long to get ready that your partner has time to write a song about it, just wear the first outfit, I'm sure it was fine. Even after the divorce, Boyd was still Clapton's muse, leading to the torch song, Old Love. In 2008, in an interview with The Guardian, Boyd said she was not a fan of the song. The end of a relationship is a sad enough thing, but to then have Eric writing about it as well, it makes me more sad, I think, because I can't answer back. 
Tragedies, especially personal tragedies, are fertile ground for songwriting inspiration, and it can act as a form of therapy to help the writer work through their grief. You're probably aware of the heart-rending accident behind Eric Clapton's 1991 hit Tears in Heaven. A janitor had been repairing a window in Clapton's 53rd floor hotel room when his four-year-old son Connor slipped beneath the adult's attention, as children sometimes do, and fell. In my research, I learned that Clapton wrote another song for Connor, 1997's Circus, about how he had taken Connor to the circus the night before he died, the night when Clapton had vowed to himself to be a proper father. As some of you may know, I'm on hormone replacement therapy right now, so I'm just going to go and cry like a little bit for a minute. Clapton's songs have the decency to sound sad when they're saying sad things, but a lot of pop songs are deceptively catchy and sing-alongable. Take Led Zeppelin's All My Love, definitely not in my top 10 for the band, but I can't dunk on it because it wasn't written to or about a romantic partner, but rather to Robert Plant's son, Karak, who died of a sudden illness at the age of five. I think it was just playing tribute to the joy that he gave us as a family and, in a crazy way, still does occasionally. Plant said in an interview. Two years later, his wife Maureen gave birth to another son, Logan, who the singer said was so similar to Karak that sometimes... The two images are blurred. If we're contrasting the sound of a song with its supposed message, the award for greatest cognitive dissonance has to go to the trio of Hanson brothers and their wondrous one-hit, Mbop. Hold the damn phone, you might be saying. What hidden message could that song possibly have? I'll confess, I couldn't recite a single lyric outside of the chorus, even at gunpoint. So it's a good thing someone else has done some research. According to Zach Hansen, the youngest of the three, who was 11 when the song came out, Mbop is really about, quote, the futility of life. This was either a really depressing group of kids, or maybe at least the eldest brother wrote it. Isaac was 16 at the time, and you know how dramatic teenagers can be. Why else would the lyrics say things like, You have so many relationships in this life. Only one or two will last. You go through all the pain and strife. Then turn your back, and they're gone so fast. Staying in one-hit wonders, in the summer of 1998, you might have caught yourself driving with the windows down, singing along to fastball single The Way with a big smile on your face. It actually sounds a lot like my first honeymoon, when we didn't have much money to do anything, so we hopped in a rented car, picked a cardinal direction, and just went. The song was about a married couple, but not a happy road trip. It's actually about the disappearance of an elderly Texas couple, Raymond and Leela Howard, who headed out one night to attend a fiddle festival and never came home. Raymond had suffered a stroke just prior to that, and Leela had begun showing signs of Alzheimer's disease. Two weeks later, police found their Oldsmobile in Arkansas, hundreds of miles from their destination, 
at the bottom of a cliff. The pair had died in the crash. Officials speculated the couple may have become lost and or the driver disoriented, and they just kept going the wrong way, eventually driving off the road. Wow, you're thinking, what a darkly insensitive thing to write commercial music about. The victims' families must have been outraged. Actually, they were touched by what they considered a tribute to their pater and mater familias. One of their grandsons told his local news, I was just blown away. I just couldn't believe somebody would do something like that for my grandma. Powerful. Very powerful. So at least you can feel good about that part of it. Let's raise the tone back up a bit. Sometimes hit songs come from deliberate effort, and sometimes they just sort of happen. A little throwaway bit of nothing can inspire a song that spends weeks on the hit parade. If you owned Paul Simon's self-titled solo album, you will have heard Mother and Child Reunion. That sounds sweet, doesn't it? That's a negative, Ghost Rider. According to a Rolling Stone interview, I was eating in a Chinese restaurant downtown. Uh, There was this dish called Mother and Child Reunion. It's chicken and eggs. And I said, oh, I love that title. I gotta use that one. When songwriter Desmond Child was brought in to help Aerosmith write some new songs, the band was mostly cold toward him, not being big on outside writers as a concept. Except singer Steven Tyler, who showed Child a song he had been writing called Cruisin' for the Ladies. Child was not impressed with it, particularly the title. To try to win his audience back, Tyler told him the original title had been Dude Looks Like a Lady. He'd been at a bar when he looked over and saw the tease-to-Jesus locks of some knockout blonde, who turned out to be Vince Neil from Motley Crue. The band was initially concerned that the title would be offensive to the LGBT community. Child replied, I'm gay and I'm not insulted. Let's write the song. And in case you're curious, Vince Neil would eventually learn that the song was about him, and according to Child, had a good laugh about it. It's got both an iconic guitar solo and keyboard solo, both played by Eddie Van Halen. It was the lead single from Van Halen's hit album 1984. Frontman David Lee Roth's antics cemented the spandex-loving 80s aesthetic in the video for the song he wrote after watching the news one night. There was a story about a suicidal man standing on top of a building threatening to jump. Roth recalled, He was about to check out early. He was going to do the 33-story drop. There was a whole crowd of people in the parking lot downstairs yelling, Don't jump! Don't jump! And I thought to myself, Jump! I would ask, what the hell is wrong with David Lee Roth, but you didn't sign on for a three-hour episode. R.E.M.'s painfully upbeat song, Shiny Happy People, featuring Kate Pearson of the B-52s, must have a painfully upbeat origin story, right? Your optimism is adorable. The repeated ad nauseum title comes from the translation of a Chinese propaganda poster from the Chairman Mao era, which read, Shiny Happy People Holding Hands. The song came out less than a year after the infamous protests in Tiananmen Square, where an estimated 
2,600 pro-democracy demonstrators were killed. But it's a bop, am I right? And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Closing time really sounds like its last orders at the pub, but singer Dan Wilson wrote this song for his daughter, who'd been born three months premature. He kept the real meaning hidden so his bandmates wouldn't complain about being made to sing a song about his baby. Millions and millions of people bought the song and heard the song and didn't get it, he told the crowd during a show. They think it's about being bounced from a bar, but it's about being bounced from the womb. Special thanks to today's guest quote readers. Bill Hobson, host of the Big Impact Podcast. Bill Weingartner from the Slipshod Pod. Alex from USUK. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and links to the source material at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe.